Hi guys, welcome to Mom Jeans and Crime Scenes. I am your host, Trish Strink. Um, I am so excited about this podcast, vlog, whatever you want to call it, um, because I am absolutely obsessed with murder and all things true crime. And I have got to blame my parents for that because they have always been like, massive true crime fans and I remember sitting and watching like the OJ Simpson trial with my dad and like just all the evidence and just how fascinating it was to me the whole process all of it it's just so cool and so I grew up thinking that I am so weird because I am so obsessed with this stuff I even took a crime scene investing investigating class in high school like I was like sure that's what I wanted to do with my life and then I decided I wanted to be a mom and I knew I couldn't do both, but like I've been obsessed with it. So um, I, that's kind of what, like who I am. I'm just into that kind of stuff. And I thought I was alone in that and just kind of a weird little person, but it actually turns out that there's a whole lot of you that are just as weird as me. So um, I'm excited to share my stories and to, to learn more and share it with you guys because it's fun for me and I want to... Um, be better at storytelling. That's something I've always wanted to be good at. So I feel like this will be a really great opportunity for me to grow there. So be patient with me as my podcast and my vlogs go forward. I'm hoping to get better and better at this. And yeah, so anyway, so thank you for joining me. So my first story, um, I wanted to start with local stories. I'm from Utah. And so all the stories I want to do for my first season, I want to do Utah stories. And I f figure that most of the people who are listening to this are probably from Utah and people who know me, and that's about it. So <laughs> um, I thought that it would be fun to do some stories that you maybe have heard of or maybe you haven't heard of, and you'll be as shocked as the community was when they happened. So um, the first story I want to talk about is the Hi-Fi hi Shop murders. And they happened in Ogden, Utah on April 27th. 22nd, 1974. So this happened, if you are familiar with Utah, you know that Ogden has like these beautiful mountains. Um, the mountains were starting to turn green. There was still a little bit of snow painted on the mountains. And you have like all these beautiful trees lining Washington Boulevard that are blossoming. So it's a beautiful area. And the Hi-Fi shop is located on 2323 Washington Boulevard. So Courtney Nesbitt, he is a 16-year-old boy. He is so intelligent. He was so, so smart. He had so much going for him. He was a student at Ogden High. And it actually turns out he went to school with my dad. So I just, this story even more just resonates with me because so many people in my family knew the families. So Courtney was, um, he was on the path to be a doctor or whatever he wanted to be. Like, he was so bright. He was kind of a quiet kid at school. He had friends, but he's kind of a bit of a loner. He kind of, you know, didn't really mesh with the big cliques. He was just kind of a quiet kid, but um, everyone liked him. He was really likable. Um, when I hear him described, I think of Luke Skywalker. Like, he had the blonde, shag, neatly trimmed. He's just a really cute kid. Um, and, and I always have always pictured Luke Skywalker when I've heard of him and even seeing pictures of him, something about him just reminds me of Luke Skywalker. So it just makes me laugh. He's just a cute kid. Um, he was 
he had just finished probably the best day of his entire life, okay? He had been doing flight classes for quite some time and he was getting really, really good. And so his instructor decided to surprise him with his first solo flight around Ogden. So he had just done that and he was so excited to come home and tell his parents about it. This is a time before you have cell phones, before you know you have the internet and Facebook to announce these things. So he um, was really excited to go home for dinner and tell his family. But before he got home, he needed to go and take another aviator class at Weber State University. Um, but his mom and dad, they got a hold of him while he was still at the airport and asked him if he would, if, you know, maybe he wouldn't mind picking up some pictures from a trip that they had just gotten back from. They were developed and he was right there in the area. So he agreed. He kind of figured he had the time to quickly run over, grab the pictures, and then go up to Weber State and finish his class. So he walked over, got the pictures, and then he um, decided to go through the hi-fi shop and tell him thank you for letting him park in their parking lots. Um, if you are familiar with Washington Boulevard, the parking situation down there is kind of crazy. So um, he wanted to thank them for allowing him to, to park over there. And he's familiar with the hi-fi shop because his cousin Brent Richardson owned it. So he knows at this time it's closing time. And, you know, they should be bustling. He knows his friend Stanley's working in there. Uh, Michelle Ansley is in there. And they should be getting ready to close the store, register should be going, the records should be, be being put away, and none of that is happening. So he's kind of like, what is the deal? Like, why aren't they, they closing up shop? So he's kind of a little bit worried, and he walks to the back of the store. And in a small little room, he can see his pal Stanley. Now, Stanley is 20 years old. He's really a cute kid, broad. Um, he's kind of got that lumberjack look to him, and an excellent salesperson. Um, I think that Brent was so super impressed with, with Stanley. And then Michelle Ansley was next to him. And Michelle was really a pretty, pretty girl. And that's how everyone describes her, really pretty. She was engaged, but even though she was engaged, she was still super flirty with, with men. And so kind of made her like that perfect salesperson. And she'd been working there for a week and was doing great. And they loved her. So, um, Courtney sees Stanley and Michelle in this little room and he walks in and the the light from that side of the the building it's you know, the sun comes in from the west and it kind of blinds him so for a minute he can't see who else is in this room but he hears two voices that he does not recognize and they're threatening him and before he knows that he's punched in the stomach he's kicked in the nuts he's pushed down the stairs into this basement and they take him and they bind him, they bind Michelle, and they bind Stanley with electrical cord. And they tie them up and just throw them down on their, their faces. And these two men, Courtney kind of gets a look at them. One man is really tall. He's athletically built and he's a, kind of a handsome black man. He's like really not too, too bad looking really. And the other man, on the other hand, he is a shorter black man and he not as good looking as this other guy. There's also a third guy, another tall, slender black man who's um, a little bit lighter skinned, very handsome guy. But like I said, this other little, little guy, he's not quite as cute. He's got this receding hairline. Um, he kind of talks with an accent that is really hard to understand. He has a funky little walk to him and he's kind of aggressive. And so, you know, they, they're afraid, especially of 
the littler guy. And his name, it turns out to be Del Selby Pierre. Um, and Del, he's, you know, kind of, you can kind of get the idea that he, even though he's littler of the other guys, he's the leader and he's kind of a stocky dude too. Um, the other guy, his name is William Andrews and he is, I would say the mastermind of all this, this, the whole idea of robbing the hi-fi shop was his. And then the other guy is Roberts and his whole plan is just to come rob the store and leave. So he, he leaves the victims down into the basement and he starts going and loading up the vans that are waiting out there. And there are three other people out in those vans. So that is where Roberts goes. He goes out to the vans. So uh, Dell and Williams, <clears throat> sorry, William, he, uh, William Andrews, they are uh, kind of walking around and tormenting their victims. Um, Dell Selby says to Michelle Ansley, you know, how would you like it if I sliced your throat open? Just awful things like this. And he's really enjoying these awful things that he's saying to her. And um, Andrews makes comments about Stanley. He had met Stanley before when he, I, probably when he's checking out the shop to kind of figure out what's there, kind of make a plan that they can execute smoothly. So he has met Stanley already. And he says to Stanley, you know, you're a really good salesperson. If you weren't such a good salesperson, I I wouldn't want all this stuff. Like, you're so good. It made me want all this stuff. So that's why you're being robbed. So he's making these kind of comments to Stanley and joking just kind of in a, just a gross way. And um, so this kind of happens for a few hours. And Stanley's father, Oren, starts to get a little bit nervous. His son hasn't come home. The shop has been closed for a while now and he's not sure what is going on. So he goes up to the shop and he's, kind of wondering you know what happened so he goes to the back door and he comes in and um he they can hear the the footsteps and at this point these kids they are familiar with the scuff the scuffling the bustling the different footsteps of each person they know whenever Dale comes down the stairs they know it's him whenever um Andrews comes down the stairs they know that's him they've kind of recognized their footsteps but this this walk is different. And so they're kind of like, what is going on? Now, at this point, Dell and Andrews are downstairs in the basement and they hear these footsteps as well. So they get their guns and they point their guns up to the, the staircase, okay? And all of a sudden you see these two feet walking down the stairs and it happens to be Oren Walker, Stanley's dad. And as soon as Stanley sees his dad, his heart breaks. And you can hear it. He's like, oh, dad, why? Why did you come and find me? Why did you do this? And Stanley's brought down the stairs. He's a, a bigger, broad guy, just like his son. And he is, he's kind of not really going to take the crap that these two men are going to, are trying to give him. And he's kind of being a little bit defiant with them. And he keeps telling them, hey, if you guys want to rob this store, great, go rob this store. We won't identify you, but just let these kids go. We're not, we're, you know, we're not going to identify you guys. And he keeps saying this over and over. And the, he's, you know, defiant. He's not wanting them to touch him. He's kind of fighting back with them. They get to the point where they're, they're just not liking Oren. They don't like him. I think that they come up with this idea that they really just, they're not going to put up with him being defiant and ruining their little plants. So they tie him up and they throw him on the ground. Well, not long later... Um, Carol Nesbitt is sitting at home and while all this is happening at the hi-fi shop, 
she starts kind of like dinner's on the table and it's getting cold and she's starting to get worried because Court should have been home by now and he has not come home. And so she tells her husband, you know, I know that you're waiting, you're on call. Her husband um, is, he's a pediatric, or sorry, an obstetrics doctor. And he, he probably delivered at least 400 babies a year in Ogden. Like most of those babies in Ogden, he delivered. He helped deliver my aunt. He helped deliver um, my brother. Like he's a prominent doctor in Ogden. And so he is on call and he has to stay by the phone as you know we know that this is in a time where they had cell phones so he cannot leave easily but he's just trying to kind of calm his wife down she's kind of a little lady five five two five three really petite just slender but man she has you know some spunk to her and so she's like you know my there's something wrong and he's trying to tell her like just calm down you know we know that court probably he, he probably got to do his solo flight we know that that was going to happen that probably that probably happened today. He's probably talking to his friends about it and is excited. So let's just wait. Let's not get worried. Like worrying's not going to do anything. And she's, you know, the time starts to tick more and he's not back. And so she's like, I'm going to go find him. And she, her son is also there waiting. And she gets upset with her husband and her son. And she's like, if you guys aren't going to help me, if you guys are just going to make fun of me, I'm going to go find him by myself. So she takes off and she slams the door. She gets in her car and she just drives off like a bat out of hell. She's mad. She's going to find her kid. She knows something is wrong. So she goes up to Weber State. Court did not come to his class. He did not make it. So now she's like, something is so wrong. So she gets back in her car comes home and she bursts through the door. Guys, there is something wrong. Like we have to find court. And they're still kind of like, okay, this is weird. He didn't make it to his class, but you know, he still probably got a solo flight. He probably got held up at the hi-fi shop and he's talking to his friends. Stanley's there. Like he's probably just really excited. But she's like, you know, he hasn't called. He hasn't made any kind of contact to let me know. So I just really, this is not like him. I need to go down there and and figure it out and you know still Dr. Nesbitt he's not he's not worried I mean he's worried but not to the degree that his wife is so again she gets storming out of the house cops in her car and they hear her take off and she makes her way to the hi-fi shop and when she gets there Court's car is there and so immediately she's like something is off something's wrong so she goes in and they hear her her car door shut. So they walk up the stairs, both um, Selby and Andrews. They walk up the stairs and they're waiting for her. And they hear her little footsteps and they know that it's probably another, another victim to be brought down. And so everyone is kind of worried. And then they hear her voice. Court, court. And Court's heart sinks. And he sees his mom in her little red dress that he'd seen her in that morning walking down the stairs. And he's just sick that his mom is now being pulled into the situation. And she's quickly tied up with her son. And this, this whole time, they're down there. She keeps telling him, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to live. We're going to get you out of here. She's just trying to console her son. And... Everyone's scared. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. And William Andrews 
and Del Selby come back downstairs and they come out with a paper bag full of some kind of a drink and they pour this drink into a cup and they tell Orrin Walker, you need to give this drink to all the victims. It's just um, vodka and it's laced with a German drug that will make you all sleepy. And Orrin is like, there is no way in hell I am going to give any of us this. And he's just super defiant. So they're like, fine, you don't do it, we will. So they force it down Carol Nesbitt's throat. And she starts coughing and choking and vomiting and making all these awful noises. And so it's clear to everyone now that this is not vodka and this is not a pill that's going to make them fall asleep. Not This is not like a kind of a mixture that, that they had been described. So he gives it to Courtney Nesbitt. And the same thing happens to Court. He drinks it. It's forced down his throat. And he also coughs, vomits, throws up. It's just, it's awful. Um, Michelle Ansley, they give it to her. And while she did, um, she did convulse and everything like the, the other two did, not as much. They give it to Stanley. Same thing. Like, it's just this terrible, awful scene. It starts to smell awful down there. And at this point, Oren Walker's like, I'm not drinking that. So he takes the, the drink when he's given it to him and he holds it in his mouth. And when they're not, they put him back on his face because that's what they had done with everyone else. They laid them down on their faces after they were forced to drink this stuff. So he lays down and he lets the, the caustic drink come down all over his shoulder like just down his throat and everything and he does not swallow it but he fakes that he does he makes the same sounds he convulses just like everybody else um and so selby and williams they wait for their victims to die and this isn't happening their victims are not dying yet not so they're like okay this is kind of obviously draining out of their mouths so they get the drink again and they administer it to each person again but this time they take tape and they try to like duct tape their mouths shut but because of the pus and the wounds from the caustic drink they're unable to um to keep that tape on their mouths and so we kind of get to this point that you know Andrews is like, okay, let's be done with this. Maybe, you know, maybe we should go. And Selby's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not done. He's like, give me a half an hour. You go upstairs and finish. Give me a half an hour down here. And so, um, according to Andrews, he goes back upstairs to help finish robbing the hi-fi shop. And Selby takes Michelle Ansley and he drags her out and he takes her to a back room in the basement and he violently rapes her violently rapes her and um Oren actually before that happened I do believe he actually they shot Courtney Nesbitt and Carol Nesbitt so he shot both Courtney and Carol in the back of the head um before he he took Michelle and then he took Michelle back and he raped her he brings her back in she's naked throws her on the ground okay and then he executes Michelle and after he executes Michelle he does the same thing to Stanley, executes him, shoots him in the back of the head, and then he shoots Oren Walker. Well, Oren, he misses. And so he shoots Oren again, and this time he hits Oren, but it's it's pretty superficial. It's a superficial hit, but Oren fakes being dead. And so 
Andrews comes back down. They're kind of trying to figure out what they're going to do. They both are kind of yelling back and forth. It's kind of hard to hear what's going on. But Oren is alive enough and awake enough to kind of be listening. He can't tell what they're saying. He hears the two men come back downstairs. So he fakes being dead. Well, Selby and Andrews, they kind of note that Oren might still be alive. So they take... This is awful. They take... um, some wire and they wrap it around his neck and they start to tighten it and try to strangle him. But Oren, the fighter that he is, he tightens his neck up so that there's some leeway when he lets go. And so they think that maybe that they've strangled him and they throw him back down onto the ground and he's able to get enough air that he's able to breathe, but he's trying to fake dead. And they, they notice again, like, Hey, this guy's still not dead. So they go upstairs they come back downstairs and all of a sudden they shove a pen into Oren's ear and Selby stomps on it many times. Like if Selby is described as a little dude with small feet and every, I've heard so many descriptions about this, his small, tiny little feet stomped on this guy's ear and caused so much damage. Like it's just incredible what a small little person can do. It's just really sad. The force that he used. Um, so they leave them for dead. (sighs) So at this point, Courtney Nesbitt's still alive. His mom is still alive. Both Stanley and Michelle passed away. They passed away pretty much immediately after being shot. And Oren Walker is still alive. And it's been a couple more hours and Oren's wife starts getting worried. Like, where is where's my family? Like, why haven't they come home yet? So her and her 16-year-old son jump in the car and they go looking for Oren and for Stanley. And they get to the hi-fi shop and she sees their cars both there and she just gets this sick feeling. And they get out and they can hear screaming. They can hear this screaming coming and um, the door's locked. They can't get in there. And so her 16-year-old son, um, I imagine he's probably built like his brother and his dad, he kicks in the door and he gets in there and he finds his dad running around with a pen shoved in his ear, kind of delirious. The mom calls 911. The scene that Ogden Police Department come to is horrific. It's one that they, they say that they have nightmares for months and months after, years and years after. This is the most horrific scene that they've ever come across. They come downstairs it smells like puke. It smells like death. It's just, it's awful. And they are like, what, who could have possibly done something so terrible? And Oren Walker, he's, he's able to kind of talk and tell them a little bit what he knows, like, but they have to rush him up to the hospital. They rush Carol Nesbitt to the hospital and they rush, um, court to the hospital. Um, So they're kind of talking amongst themselves, the OPD investigators, trying to figure out, like, who who, who could do something so terrible. And one of the investigators at this point, he had 30 murders that had been assigned to him. 29 of those murders he had been able to solve. All of them but one murder. And this murder, it had happened about six months prior. And he was unable to solve it. He knew who the murderer was, and it was terrible, terrible and graphic, but he had no, like, he had no way to prove who his, that his murderer had done it. So he knew the guy 
had done it. He even told the guy, hey, I know that you did this and I'm going to get you. But he was um, constantly stopped with circumstantial evidence, nothing physical linking him to this other murder. So this is one that kept him up at night. And he even thought about this murder and he's like, I don't even think that guy could have done this. Like, um, the the murder was an airman up on Hill Air Force Base and um, the, the guy who killed him, there's a few different versions. I could not find a story on this anywhere, but it did happen. It was either an ice pick or it was um, a bayonet that was like shoved into his nose up his face. Like he, it was pretty violent. Um, and it was all over a car that the perpetrator wanted to steal in a, a car um, theft ring that was going on up at Hill Air Force Base. So um, he even thought about that perpetrator and he's like, that guy was bad. And I know that that guy is going to kill again, but like, I don't even think that guy's capable of this stuff. So they, they're kind of, you know, not sure how to profile this. They just know it's graphic. They know that the, the men that came in and did this, they had, they were meticulous. They knew exactly what was going to go down. They knew that they were going to have to kill their victims. They had had this plan to the T and they executed this pretty much exactly the way they wanted to. And um, so meanwhile, um, Dr. Nesbitt gets a phone call at home. And it's somebody from Salt Lake City. And they say, hey, what the heck is going on up in Ogden? And Dr. Nesbitt's like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, the hi-fi shop, your nephew, you know, your nephew's store was robbed and people were murdered. And so at this point, he's like, oh, my gosh. So he gets to the hospital or to the hi-fi shop and he's a freaking mess. And they finally send him up to the hospital and he is greeted by doctors that know him and they first tell him like court's alive but not very alive and not expected to live and your wife she passed away once she got up here so as that's happening Oren Walker is up at McKady and investigators go up there they're able to talk to him and get some more information about their perpetrators that's going on um Courtney Nesbitt is in such bad shape. Okay, so there's all these things I gotta tell you. So it's really hard. There's so many elements that go into this story. I had no clue until I really dug into it. Um, he, Courtney's oldest brother, Brett, I believe he's the oldest brother, he lives in Ogden and he is a surgical tech, or he was a surgical tech at that time. Um, and he had um, permission to perform surgery at St. Benedict's and at McKay. And um, Courtney is at St. Benedict's. Okay. Um, on his way home, um, Brett and his wife and their adopted little girl, they're on their way home and an ambulance speeds past them. And his wife, Diane is like, I really think that we need to follow this ambulance home. And he's kind of like, what are you talking about? We're not following this ambulance up to the hospital. And she's like, I have this really bad feeling. And she's trying to talk him into following the ambulance and he refuses to. And so she's kind of like, you know, okay, I'll get this idea out of my head. They get home and it's not even like half an hour later that they're getting a phone call saying to get up to the hospital that there was an accident. Um, it turns out that that ambulance actually had his mom in there. So the, his mom sped past him. So that's just a really crazy coincidence of a million. Um, another crazy coincidence about a story that really got me was um, the only surgical tech that was able to perform that a brain surgery to help with that was 
Courtney's brother, Brett. He was the only person who was able to perform that. So he, even though he was grieving his mother, he's grieving his brother. They're not sure if this, this kid's going to live or what's going to happen. He goes in and performs the surgery and helps with, well, helps with performing the surgery. Like that to me is just freaking crazy. And just a testimony of the family, the strength this family has. Like they're such incredible people and I admire them so much. Um, because I'm not sure I could have handled things the way that they did. So we're going to take just a quick little break. Um, and then we're going to talk about how our perpetrators were found. So just give me a second from a word with a word from my sponsors. I'm just kidding. I don't have any sponsors, but if you want to sponsor me, put your ad in right here. Thanks. Okay, you guys, so capturing our perpetrators, this was a whole mix of serendipity and like major good luck and a lot of really good detective work. Um, they were able to kind of figure out their, um, their perpetrators pretty quickly. So a few things that went wrong for Dale Selby and William Andrews were that they were on Hill Air Force Base and they were bragging about robbing a hi-fi shop. In particular, William Andrews was telling people that he was going to rob a hi-fi shop, a hi-fi shop, and he um, would kill anybody who got into his way. Um, also, Selby and Andrews talked a lot about a movie that they were um, they were kind of obsessed with, The Magnum Force. It just came out in 1973. Um, they were watching this a lot over and over there was one scene in particular that they were obsessed with and it was um, they gave a prostitute Drano and the prostitute drink drinks the Drano and she dies. It's really quick, painless, easy. So the, in their minds, this was the perfect way to kill our victims. And as we know, that is that's just not how it went down. Um, uh, another thing, too, is that they they left witnesses. Um, there was a young girl whose mom owned one of the stores next door, and she was out in the back alley, and Selby happened to come upon her, and he was like, who are you? And she, she told him, like, oh, my mom's store is right here. I'm just going over there. And he let her go. Thankfully, he let her go. Um, and so she was able to testify later on in the trial about that. Um a few other things that um, kind of went in the way of our detectives. Um, so first off, they started getting phone calls in Ogden, um, some tips. And some of those tips were from airmen who were telling them, hey, you know, they were telling us that they want to rob a hi-fi shop. They talked about the Magnum Force. It, um, you know, kind of like... It's just too much of a coincidence. They described the airmen. They fit the description that Oren Walker had given them. Um, so part of OPD had some great information. And then on Hill Air Force Base, some major, major craziness was happening up there. So Selby and Andrews took all of the victims' things. They took purses, wallets, all their things. They took a watch, um... Actually, it's kind of funny. They took a bunch of stuff, but they left um, jewelry on Carol Nesbitt that, from what I understand, was actually more expensive than all of the, the stuff that they had gotten from the hi-fi shop. But they had ignored that stuff. But they had gotten um, 
all the victims' stuff, and they took it back to Hill Air Force Base, and they threw it away in some dumpsters behind their barracks. Well, um, two young boys who were like 11 and 12, they had a job that they would do after school every day. They would meet together, and they would go through all the dumpsters, and they would find, like, bottles and things like that, and they'd collect them, and then they'd go and sell them. And then they would have money for treats and to be able to go to the movies and things like that. So it's something that they would do. Their um, hard work paid off. Um, so they happened to come across the dumpster behind Selby's barracks. And they found wallets. They found purses. They found credit cards. And they were like, whoa, this is holy cow. Like something must have happened. Why would all this stuff be here? Like, somebody must have gotten robbed. Like, they were sure of it. So, they had planned on taking everything up to their parents. Well, an airman happened to see them carrying these big bottles and um, boxes and stuff. And they were like, the airman came and asked if they needed help. And the boys started telling them about some of the treasures that they had found as far as the um, wallets and the purses. And so, the airman kind of looked at it. Um, he felt like he needed to contact you know, the owners and get them back. Um, the boys didn't want to part with things. Um, they were worried that the airman wasn't going to be honest. And so he made a deal with them. He would take the purse. They could take the rest. And he took the purse and he um, went to a payphone and he called um, on a checkbook. He could see Michelle Ansley's phone number. So he called Michelle Ansley and her family answered and they tell him that Michelle Ansley was just murdered the night before. And he was like, oh my gosh, I have her purse. They're tossing him back and forth on the phone. People are getting upset. How did you get the purse? Um, so he gets off the phone. He calls the Air Force Base police to get up over here immediately. Like, obviously something, this is all connected. So he has the police come back to the dumpster. They meet up with the boys. They're looking at everything. And they realize they've got their their perpetrators. These are all their victims from the night before. Um, so I told you how OPD had been working with Hill Air Force Base um, on an unsolved murder that happened six months before. Well, they had just broke that case. One of the airmen, um, the, the Air Force police officers, points over at the barracks in front of the dumpster and he's like, that is Del Pierre's barracks right there and they were like oh my gosh this is the same guy they knew had murdered an airman six months prior and now they had him it was really kind of I think an exciting break for them in a way because like it's all coming together and they knew for sure that, that they had their their guy they knew for sure that this guy completely committed the hi-fi shop murders um so they Get a search warrant, and it's a little tricky when you're dealing with Hill Air Force Base because they're military and then with civilian and everything like that. It's really tricky, the process, but they were finally able to get the warrants that they needed, and they search Pierre's um, barracks. And they, they um, arrest him, they get him out of there, and they're searching everywhere for, you know, stolen goods. They are not finding anything. They really can't find a whole lot other than they found some brochures for the hi-fi shop that they were able to take into evidence. Um, and then they start shuffling 
the furniture around and pulling up the carpet to figure out what's going on. And it's a long night. It's like past one o'clock in the morning. And a lot of the officers are like, there is not going to be anything here. So a lot of them leave. But one de detective does stay behind and keep searching. And he pulls back the carpet, pulls it all the way to the middle, and he finds an envelope. And inside this envelope is a contract with a storage unit just a few blocks away from the hi-fi shop. And so they're like, whoa, we, this is it. We've got what we need. So they go back. They, um, he goes back to Ogden Police Department. They all get in their cars. They go to the storage unit and they're able to break open this storage shed. Um, of course they got their warrants and all the things that they needed first, but they were able to do that really quickly. They get in there and they can just see all kinds of, of stuff in there. Um, they, because it's so late, they decide to just lock it up and they'll search the next day to see what's going on. They leave an officer to watch. Um, the next day they search it. Of course, they find like $24,000 worth of equipment. They find a bottle of Drano. So they're able to identify this caustic drink that everyone had drank before that nobody really knew. So they found the bottle of Drano. I believe that they found the weapons there. Um, they are like, there's so much evidence that is presented in court that they're able to, able to bring in. Um, and they try, and I believe it was in September or October, I want to say it was October, that they were able to try all three of them together. Um, Keith Roberts, he was the one that, you know, said that he left. He did not leave. He was still there when the murders occurred, according to eyewitnesses. Um, they had a hung jury with him as far as the aggravated murder, but he was definitely guilty of aggravated robbery. So he got a, a pretty hefty um, sentence, but he was paroled in 1987 where he moved from what I hear to Oklahoma. And I've read that he owns like a stereo shop or he worked at a stereo shop or something like that, which I think is kind of gross. Like I really, it just makes me kind of sick to my stomach, honestly. Um, Dell and Andrews, now they are both um, sentenced to, you know, they, everyone is like, they're guilty for sure. And they are given the um, death penalty. In Utah, the death penalty had just had like a revamp. Um, there was all kinds of, you know, things, factors that go into this. And they really met all of these points. They there was no doubt in anyone's mind that they were going to um, be facing execution. Um, and at that time, execution was going to be firing squad or they would be hung. Um, later on, after years and years and years of appeals, um, they were um, first Pierre was, uh, was executed by lethal injection. And then later on, Andrews was, um, there is a lot of uh, contention with all of that as far as um, a lot of the family felt like even though they were they were in prison, even though they, they did get the death penalty, justice still wasn't served and that there, there's more to it. And it's something I've never thought of really until reading this and to looking into this, that there's more to justice than just putting the perpetrators behind bars. Courtney Nesbitt had a lifetime of pain, a lifetime of not being able to work. Um, he, he did work for a while. And then when his memory started coming back, um, 
he started remembering what was happening. He remembered what happened to his mother. He remembered the moments before it. He remembers the words she said. Um, and in fact, at one point, at one of the appeals, he was there listening to Del Pierre lie about his mom and saying that his mom said things that she did not say, terrible things that she did not say. And he said, not only could she not say, I mean, she just wouldn't. That's just not kind of the kind of woman she was. So it was really just hard for them to hear this. And then they they go away into prison and they're taken care of. They're fed. They're clothed. Um, they're able to get educations. They, um, Selby had mountains and mountains of books on real estate investment and had all these crazy ideas of businesses that he was going to start. And like, he was able to just dream. The sky was the limit. I mean, he was like so, he just thought he was better than everybody. He, I don't know. He just, well, those people that... It's just, he's sick. And he was just able to dream in prison. And he thought for sure he's going to get out and he's going to do all these grand things. And then you've got Courtney Nesbitt who's struggling. And it wasn't fair. He was being taken care of and Nesbitt was not. And um, I, it got me thinking about what justice looks like and wanting to help um, like victims and things like that and advocating for them. So that's something I'm hoping to get involved with. I'm hoping to find my way to that. So if you have resources on stuff like that, let me know because I do want to get involved. I think that that's part of the justice process that we really don't take care of here. And um, I, I absolutely agree with appealing the death penalty but it's sad that all this money is gone into that, but not a single penny of that money is given to the victims. And it really, there should be a balance there. And it's really sad to see that that's not the case. And I believe that that's really how um, Courtney Nesbitt's family felt about it all. So anyways, um, luckily, Del Selby and um, Andrews, they were caught quickly. The death penalty did finally come for them. And... Um, I think the family is just doing their best to move on. All five victims have since passed on. Um, Courtney Nesbitt did incredible things with his life. It took him a really long time. He worked as a computer, I think a computer programmer, or doing something with computers on the Hill Air Force Base, which I think is kind of ironic. Um, my dad said that he watched him graduate, which was really cool. Um, he graduated with his, his class. He was out of school for... I mean, a whole year pretty much. And he was able to catch up and still graduate with his class. How incredible is that? Um, he had a lot of pain, things like that, but he still like overcame. And um, the story that um, the victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder, he really reached out to the family. He really got to know them be, and tell their stories. And other people who've been through similar things were able to relate and lives were changed because of that. So Courtney Nesbitt really did change a lot of people's lives and help people get through a lot of the things that they that they've been through and um another thing about um yeah I don't know the the book victim I just please if you have not read it you have to it is so good download it on audible listen to it buy it from amazon whatever like it's so good and I am not being asked to say that it really is good. It really, it goes into so much depth. That's where I got a lot of my information from. And this guy spent a lot of time researching. Um, I am going to cite my sources again, if I didn't already. Um, ABC for Utah Justice Files, The Standard Examiner, Murderpedia, and The Desert News. And then just um, information that I 
I've got from just talking to people. Um, so many people have come to me um, you know, growing up. I've just heard so many stories about people knowing the victims and knowing the story. And so I've really been able to pick up a lot of that. But if you have a story that relates to Hi-Fi Shop, like maybe you went to the store that day or just something crazy or somebody in your family did or um, you knew the, the victims well, anything like that, totally share your stories with me. I really, I love this family and getting to know them and all the families involved. And so if you knew Michelle Ansley's family, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about Michelle and I couldn't find a whole lot of information about Oren and Stanley. And so if you've, if you've heard stories about them, like I would love for you to share those stories because I think that's really neat. And if there's anything that you thought was really cool about the trial that I missed, please comment those things because I am here for the discussion. So anyways, I hope that you guys liked my first story. Thank you for bearing with me and I will see you soon. Thanks.